Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Evie Strauss, and thank you for listening. Our country, and in a real sense the entire world, experienced the massive killing rampage in Orlando. There are two parts to such an event, that which hopefully will reduce the chances of it ever happening again, and the part that we want to focus on today, namely how to put all our lives together after the storm of this violence. Robert Nusano is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, and he is also director of the study of traumatic stress, also in Bethesda. He also sits as the director of disaster psychiatry for the American Psychiatric Association. He kindly agreed to talk to us today about the processes that happen to all of us after such a tragedy. Dr. Nusano, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Abby. This topic is big, and as multifaceted as the human experience of needing a safe place, now once again violated, to live our lives. How do you approach a person who has experienced such an event? So it is a complex problem, as you have well outlined, and one that has been tragically too often in our nation. The terrorist events from 9-11 forward to more recently the shootings in Florida and actually shootings in other places. They represent challenges to our care for individuals and challenges to our care for communities. It's important, firstly, to recognize the wide range of people affected, that such events which qualify as disasters are not local events. Many decades ago, we used to think of disasters as described by their geography, but now disasters represent communities of meaning, and they quickly spread around the nation and around the globe, so that those who are affected range from direct exposures to those who have friends and relatives to those who hear about it and are reminded of their own experiences. Secondly is the picture of how do we think of the perhaps concentric circles or the ripples of a disaster. And there are those that were directly affected who were there at the time of the event, those who may have been injured, those who may have witnessed the events. And then there are their families. There are the response teams who respond, firemen, policemen, uh, investigators, forensic specialists, medical personnel. And there is the community that surrounds them and, of course, the nation. All of those require a thoughtful work to try and aid in recovery from such events. So how do we begin? I, I know a lot of people in Central Florida are now going to help those folks in these types of reaching out by various professional and interested in helping folks, shall we use that term. Where do we begin? Is there any protocol per se? So it depends on where one's positioned and what the opportunities are to help. Specifically for those who may be mental health care providers, it's important to now and, and particularly those locally, it's important for them to remember to ask, where were you at the times of the shootings in Florida, for example? Were you touched by that event at all? That becomes then a part of the screening that will continue for years going forward. If one has the opportunity to provide support using some of the principles of what we call psychological first aid, there are important interventions early on, which include things such as keeping people connected so they aren't isolated, identifying ways to restore a sense of safety, encouraging people to recognize what they can do so that they feel strong themselves, maintaining a sense of optimism. All of those are important components of what we think of as, and have a reasonable evidence base, in fact, 
to helping people recovery for such stressful events. And then, of course, as we move on to those who have direct impact and may actually develop sustained distress and potentially psychiatric disorder, PTSD being one of them, but not the only, then we have direct interventions and treatments, of which we have effective treatments, both pharmacologic and psychotherapeutic. And lastly, I would say that for those who may be in the position to advise community leaders, and there are such who are sitting in consultation positions because they are sitting in the local governments or the federal governments or the state governments, or because they have a neighbor who is in such a leadership position, helping them understand the role of leadership in community recovery, such as the area of what we call grief leadership. How does one lead a community? through recovery from such an event. So the interventions depend on who one has access to, where one can help, and range from being a neighbor to being a healthcare provider to being a consultant to a leader of a community. A lot of the people, very well intended to be sure, want to go and help, but they're not there on a permanent basis. What should uh-huh. be the style and extent, shall we say, their therapeutic efforts? They're going to leave. The first is to contact there. Showing up on site is not a good thing, and that's true for any disaster setting. One can become a burden to the disaster community if one isn't linked in with what's going on. So outreach through an organization such as the American Psychiatric Association and the district branches, or another is if one has contact with school systems, if one's a child provider, outreach to the school systems and working through existing organizations that may be asking for help and care, volunteering time if one is in the local community to see victims of the entire range of possible victims can be a way of offering important care and support. One of the most important aspects in such a setting is to be available. An important element in this disaster, which we have encouraged people to think about, is the idea that we all stand together. One of the threats of any type of disaster is how it separates us rather than pulls us together. Even in the time which most people will experience at some time in their life or the loss of an important figure in their life, the death of a parent or, heaven forbid, a child, the power of someone reaching out to you and saying, I am sorry, if I can help, please let me know, in contrast to avoiding people, is dramatic. So whether one is a friend and neighbor or whether one has skills to provide direct care, reaching out is the most important component of the first step of an intervention. And secondly, to be sure that one works through the existing systems so that one can actually be helpful rather than become a burden to the community. Southeast Florida with Katrina, with Andrew, other things that have happened, it's a natural disaster. But this type of disaster, the shooting disasters, not only in Orlando, but San Bernardino and many others, is there a different approach to that? Great question. What we know is that the characteristics of disasters have some predictive ability in terms of how many problems we will see. In general, in interpersonal violence, there are likely to be more psychiatric casualties and for the problems to extend over a longer period of time than what we would expect in, say, a natural disaster such as a hurricane. Both have psychological distress, illness, and disease, it appears, but with interpersonal violence, we expect to see more. It's important to remember that in all of these disasters, if one asks about the whole population, 
what we see is resilience. Most people will do okay over time. It doesn't mean their life isn't changed, but it's not that we have an outbreak of psychiatric illness that's going to destroy the entire community. That's a misperception that people think of. But there are those who will develop psychiatric illness and disease. Large, substantial numbers of people will have distress. Most people will do okay over time. Is there a reasonably identifiable psychological makeup difference between those who seem to pick themselves up more quickly and successfully than others? Do we have that data? We don't. There's a great deal of research on trying to understand the concept of resilience. We know certain factors such as having strong social supports and having an optimistic approach to the world increases the probability of resilience. But we also know that given sufficient stress and sufficiently stressful events, nearly everybody will develop psychological problems. So it clearly is a band across which resilience can exist and psychological problems can exist. And it's related to the amount of stress as well as to the individual. Is there any sense of how much teachers should bring this into their classroom to discuss it? And following that question, obviously there's a difference with elementary school children and high school kids. Should we ask the teachers to discuss these events? Is, is that a good idea? Globally, yes. The question becomes how. And schools are a very important opportunity for developing recovery and intervention. There have been a number of studies examining how to train teachers to identify children that may have specific distress, as well as how to work with teachers to offer the opportunity for children to talk over their psychological fears and concerns. I once was involved with a disaster following a plane crash and was invited to come out to the schools. And I went out to the school system where the families and communities were, and the teachers were talking about that everything was fine, all was quiet. And we ended up in a discussion about that that was the problem, that where were all the feelings, that there should be feelings that are present in the children. And if one isn't seeing them and the teachers aren't seeing them, then one needs to ask, well, where did they go? That doesn't mean it has to become the focus of all attention for a extended period of time, but one needs to recognize that children experience these events both directly and by seeing their parents. And school provides the opportunity for them to talk about it with their peers and to understand how their friends are also experiencing this and to normalize the experience as well. Working with the school system can be a very valuable community-level intervention. Does there seem to be a need, a hunger, an inclination for people who are either direct victims or the indirect victims of these events to understand the motivation behind the attack? What I'm thinking about is in World War II when the bombs were dropping on London, people knew it was the Nazis versus the British. It made sense. Not good sense, but it made sense. Yeah, so one of the ways we think about that is the role of meaning-making following such events. It is one of the aspects of recovery. The problem becomes that not all things can be pieced together into a meaningful understanding. So there is both the value of meaning, which for some people will become a picture of it was a random event, nothing could be done. Another may be God will take care of them. Another way may be they had a great life prior to all of this. And another may be, I can't understand it at all, and I just can't keep thinking about it, and I need to figure out how to forget. Over time, being able to allow the event 
to recede in one's mind, either through having it found a place on the bookshelf, file it, because it now fits under XZ972 in terms of meaning, or by being able to put it way back in the bookshelf, a spot where one doesn't have to think about it frequently. The idea of that over time, we're now talking weeks, months, and for some people years, to be able not only to remember, but to forget. We often don't realize how important forgetting is to our life, and it is an aspect of all such traumatic events. They must eventually recede. Otherwise, they become the entire focus of our life and can eat away from the other parts of our life that we wish we could engage in and our family members may be wanting us to engage in. You speak of something very critical. I have sadly more than once in my life met people who've lost other folks, family members, because of violence, and they become advocates. I remember somebody, and they became an advocate and went very public on dealing with domestic violence, but they're living it every day, but they feel that it's the proper legacy. Are these people good models, or can they upset the apple cart, to use the phrase, for people who don't have this resiliency? When that works, and it can be a wonderful resolution of meaning for it to become a dedication to changing the community and the nation, the hope is that that also quiets the internal distress. If it continues to be stirring up the internal distress, then it may not have been such a good choice for that person, that it becomes an ongoing reminder rather than a way to encapsulate and quiet the feeling. So it can cut both ways. It's very difficult to prepare for these things, and we talk about the first responders. They seem, at least to many people, to have been trained to deal with these very ugly events. But to train other people in preparation for an attack probably is going to feed into unnecessary anxiety, especially if someone is obsessive or phobic. Is there any sense of how to prepare the population for these types of events, even though they're okay. rare, but they're still horrible? Even the preparation of first responders isn't sufficient for this type of event. Among that community, it will decrease the probability, but not eliminate the psychological problems. One can use the far example of soldiers. Clearly, soldiers are trained, but yet they are also vulnerable to developing post-traumatic stress disorder. There are studies, in particular, of police and forensic dentists. Those that are involved in body recovery can also be greatly affected by these events. It's a very important community, and some have unique ability to reach out to them the group that you're talking about is how can we train or prepare the community at large. In part, that's fostering this trust and hope, and also what I mentioned earlier about the recovery process of grief leadership. Leaders can vary in their ability to join in with a community in experiencing the sadness and the grief, and good leaders know when to turn to looking to the future again. The question of how long one sustains a grief, when and where does one think about memorials, which always come up, and when does one begin to turn the community back to the future, a very important community decision to both recover from this event and to, in many ways, prepare for what may be another sometime somewhere else that the community will feel an echo from, not because it's in this community, but because it will be a reminder. Having cities actually link between each other is something we've often encouraged to have the mayor of one city called the mayor of another as part of Again, bringing together the community that has experienced these events so that they can both share their experience and share the road to recovery as well. On an individual basis, and where do we consider the role of medications? Do they help? 
So specifically in our present, as you know well, present diagnostic nomenclature, within the first 30 days, we use the diagnosis of acute stress disorder. We know that a certain number of people with acute stress disorder will go on to develop PTSD, but not all of them. We know that we can prevent PTSD by intervening early. The problem is that prior to the diagnosis after 30 days. The problem is that you have to intervene with a lot of people because a lot more people get ASD than in fact develop PTSD. So in general, the period of time with acute stress disorder is one in which I would be seeing someone, evaluating them, and then having them come back again. We sometimes can forget the importance of continuing to follow while, rather than rapidly starting treatment. So it would be like the physician who says, you've got a bad cold. If this isn't over in a week, come back and see me. One can do that with mental health as well. You know, this is a lot of distress. You seem to be managing it well, but I want to be sure you're on the road to recovery. These are symptoms we expect during this first week afterwards. Come back and see me next week, and then come back and see me 30 days later. If one has PTSD, we then have a number of medications, essentially the SSRIs, that have been shown to be helpful. Frequently at that time, if either the patient doesn't want medication or, in fact, prefers a psychotherapy, we might intervene with a psychotherapy either in conjunction with or the psychotherapy alone. There are two particular types of psychotherapy that are of most importance, one called prolonged exposure therapy and the other a cognitive behavioral treatment, both of which have been shown to be effective. There is another treatment called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And although much of its components may not be critical to the treatment, we do know it really is a CBT-based treatment and it is also effective. So that all of those are effective treatments. It's important to have a supportive approach early on, to have it continue to follow the patient to see how things develop, and then to consider appropriate interventions if the symptoms continue. If there is chronic PTSD, then the question of the management of symptoms rather than just treatment of the disorder, so frequently the management of sleep problems, gets to be primary. I want to highlight, though, that PTSD is not the only disorder we see in these settings. That's really laid out in some way in the new DSM-5 by the chapter in which PTSD falls is now called Stress and Trauma-Related Disorders and is meant to recognize that there'll be other disorders that are listed there as time goes on. But the literature supports the development of depression, the development of panic disorder, and certainly increased alcohol use following such events. So all of those are very important for screening after these problems. And then farther out, questions of how a patient may, who has had a direct loss may manage grief is also important to watch for. There is a proposed psychiatric disorder, not presently a classifying disorder, but it's one to be studied, which is related to prolonged grief. So that after a year, one hopes that the patient is well on the way road to recovery from even the most difficult aspects of a grief response. It's very important to say that there is a reality of insurance coverage and access to psychotherapy and treatments, but most communities, it's there somewhere, and it's got to be looked for, and when people start to have these symptoms, they have to make a serious search. The churches can help a lot. It's there. It's just hard. 
please, if someone's having these symptoms, don't give up. Don't give up very easily. It's, it's too important a piece of their life to, to overlook. Robert Musano is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda. Sir, thank you so much for speaking with us. I hope that people at least can get a handle on some mechanism to get through this if they are having a problem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Abby.